pray together. Well, Father, we, we so want to stand on Your Word. You have established Your Word forever in the heavens. You, you have exalted Your Word in a way that's equal with Your name. What You say, You will do. We can rely on You. And I pray, O oh God, that as we have this incredible privilege of opening the eternal Word of the eternal God and reading and seeking to understand, I, I pray, O oh Lord, that You would allow us this day to, to understand it, to, to apply it, to grow, that You would draw men and women to Yourself, those who are here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that You would cause them to humbly receive Your grace and those who are Your children, that You would build us up in the Word. Do what You said You'll do. You say that through the Word, You will equip saints. And so, Lord, I beg You, not because I deserve it, not because any of us deserve anything, but because You're good and because You are faithful to Your Word, do a work that can only be explained as being from your hand and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, we're coming to the Word this morning and if you've been here at least any time since the beginning of this new year, you know that we have been working through, studying through Peter's first letter. We're working our way through the first chapter today, and we're coming to verse 18 as our text of chapter 1. Now, it often happens that uh, as I'm studying the text and preparing for the sermon, that when I finish, I, wish, I, I find that I wish I would have given a different title than I assigned in the bulletin or in the worship folder. And, and if you look on the screen now, you'll see the title that I'm giving to it. It's different than what is in the bulletin. I, 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 the title's not all that important, but it does help me at least to grasp the important um, nature, the important message, the important theme of the text. And if I could replace what's on your bulletin this morning, I would replace it with the question, what's on your mind? Now, whenever you're in a room of people, and, 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 and this size particularly, that can be uh, somewhat of a, of a difficult question, or maybe even a dangerous question to ask somebody. Hey, what's on your mind this morning? If I came to each person and, and put a microphone in your, uh, to, to your lips and said, tell us what's on your mind, I wonder what different things we might hear this morning. One of the things that I have come to appreciate so much about my wife over these past 30 years is how she ensures that we always have time to talk. And in recent years, we've been able to take time in the mornings over coffee, and she's sure to make sure, sure, sit down, let's talk. Now, admittedly, sometimes I, I do more listening than talking, but she typically will ask me a question, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about today? And, and it's a difficult thing for me to answer, probably because there are so many different things going on in my mind at one time. And so if I were to ask you this morning, what's on your mind? No doubt there'd be a lot of different things, each one representing, but each one representing individually many, many different things, many things in your mind as you sit here this morning. But I want to tell you that there is one thing that God wants to have on your mind. 
there's one thing that God wants on the forefront of your mind this morning. And you might say, well, Joe, what is that? Well, let's look at the Bible to answer that question. Would you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 18? And I'll read verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who, through him, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You probably, as we read that, saw immediately the thing that God wants to be on your mind, the thing that God wants on each of our minds this morning, what God desires to be the focus of our mind this morning as he says it to us there in that text. And what I want to do as we walk through this text this morning is draw your attention to four elements that God desires to be on our mind. There's, there's one overall arching theme that God wants to be on our mind, and that's presented through four elements. Verse 18, he wants you to be thinking about the purchase. The purchase made. And then in verses 18 and 19, we'll see he wants you to be thinking about the price paid. And then in verses 19 and 20, he wants you to see the person ordained. And then 20 and 21, the purpose named. The purchase, price, person, and purpose. Now, before we get too far into this text, we need to remember the immediate context in which we're studying this morning. We've been working admittedly slowly through these texts, and I suppose that since we're going through so slowly, maybe some of you might have forgotten exactly where we are. You might have forgotten the context in which these things are spoken. So let me just give you a quick review. Peter has sought very diligently, to bring to our minds the incredible wonders of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of our present sufferings. He doesn't ignore, he doesn't neglect the reality of our present sufferings, but he has sought to set our minds on the incredible wonders of the salvation, the grace of our salvation. And I think probably the most beautifully He presents that to us in chapter 1 in verses 10 through 12. Notice what he says in verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace, the grace of salvation that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There he talked about this wonderful grace of salvation. And you remember as we walked through that, we saw that this grace is anchored in prophetic inspiration. And that this grace, this salvation was announced through apostolic proclamation. 
And it's even admired in angelic concentration. And it will be awarded at Christ's revelation. He wants you to think about that grace. The grace of your salvation. Wonderful grace of Jesus. And that truth, my friends, that incredible truth of the grace of Christ in our salvation actually impacts our lives. You see, what, he is, what we have gotten over these last months as we've been working through the book of 1 Peter, this first chapter, is this tremendous doctrinal reality. And we learned a few weeks ago that that doctrinal reality actually collides with our life. It impacts our life such that when we understand this, our lives cannot remain the same. It can't remain the same. He says, because of this, you should live a hopeful life. A life waiting for Jesus Christ to come again. And in order to live a hopeful life, you've got to adjust the way you're thinking. You've got to, you've got to discipline your mind. You've got to be sober-minded. right? You've got to be, your mind's got to be dressed and ready for action. Not only do you have to live a hopeful life, but you've got to live a holy life. And the way that you live a holy life is by not being conformed to the way that you used to live. And then last week, we found, two weeks ago, we found out that you also have to live an honorable life. A life of reverence. Reverent fear. Reverential awe before God. And the question is, but how do I live a, a, a life of reverence? How do I live an honorable life? And he tells us, You do it by knowing, by knowing something. Now, knowing, just to get a bit technical, I've been showing you this for a couple of weeks, that word knowing is a participle, it's a verbal adjective. It's it's a descriptive term. And you saw it there. You, You know what it means to know. It means to understand something. It means to grasp it with your mind. And even better understanding is to see it. See this reality with your mind's eye. But now you need to understand something else. When he uses that word knowing, he's not telling us to come to know something. He's speaking to Christians. He's saying, you already know this, so know it more. (laughs) You already know it, so know it gooder or better or righter or whatever. Live in in, in the light of this foundational truth. What is it that we are to know? That's when we get into this outline. The purchase made, the price paid, the person ordained, and the person, uh, the purpose named. Look at the purchase that was made. What does he say in verse 18? Knowing that you were ransomed. Folks, this is at once the most elemental doctrine of, Christ, of the Christian faith And at the same time, it is from the deepest well of the Christian faith. You already know, we already know this, don't we? That a purchase has been made. Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, you have been bought with a price. And what he says is, I want you to live with this on your mind. That at one time, you were living in the futile ways, the futile emptiness that was yours by nature. You see, by nature... We live an empty, a vain, a fruitless life. Just this week, I heard about a young lady who's pursuing her own happiness in various things offered by this world. She's, she's looked to men. She's looked to drugs. She's looked to, to, to money. She's looked to ex- external beauty. And 
And she's constantly being disappointed by those things, just wandering about aimlessly. And you know, that's how we all were in the world. How many of you, you you can say that this morning, how many of you this morning remember what that vain life is like? The empty, fruitless life. The word futile that he uses here has specific reference to religious vanities. It's used that way in Acts chapter 14. It has the connotation of just continuing on with the ways of the life that we learned apart from Christ from our fathers. Things that are just passed down to us. Things we don't even have to teach. They're just passed down to us. Just We're just naturally lustful people. You and I, we're just naturally lustful people. We are just naturally sinful people. Kids, let me ask you a question. How many of you had to be taught how to sin? How many of you, did your parents come up to you and say, now, Sophia, you've not been lying enough. I want to, I want to help you to learn to lie. Did your mom and dad ever do that to you? Never had to do that, right? You just know how to do it. You naturally know how to sin. It just come, it's easy. Man, it comes naturally to you. Why? Because you're born with something called a sin nature. Guess what? That means that your ability, your desire to sin was passed down from your parents. So just look at your mom and dad and say, gee, thanks. But guess what? They got it from their parents. And they got it from their parents. And they got it from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But what Peter is saying is there has been a purchase made, a ransom paid. The word ransomed here is a word that refers to the purchase of a prisoner, the purchase of a slave. It is the price paid for the freedom of a a prisoner or a slave. The ransom, the word ransom means the necessary price of, for, for redemption to be purchased. Now Peter's speaking, as we said, he's speaking to believers, he's speaking to Christians. They are those who have come to uh, embrace the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants them to know how they are to conduct themselves with fear. How they are to live honorably. And you know how to do that? You know how to live fearfully before God? Just with this constantly on your mind. That you have been ransomed out of the old, aimless, empty, frivolous, futile ways of life. In other words, let me just put it this way. You weren't just doing, you weren't doing fine for yourself. You weren't in a pretty good place. No, actually, you and I were in a terrible state before God. We were prisoners. We were slaves of sin. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 6, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, you were slaves of sin. We were slaves to sin. What does that mean? That means we were in slavery. We were caught as prisoners under the curse of sin and under the control of sin. But as while we were in that state, that very wretched state, it was while we were in that state that we were ransomed. That the price was paid for our redemption. Do you remember what Paul said? God demonstrates his love for us in that what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
it wasn't as if we had, he said, now look, let me give you, take this opportunity, go clean yourself up, look a little bit respectable, and then come back, and I'll decide whether or not I pay the price. No, you were ransomed out of, that's what the word means, out of, away from, out of that wretched condition. And God wants that to be on your mind this morning, that he didn't wait for you to dress yourself up before he paid the price. You see, it's always ever on the basis of grace that we come to God. No basis for boasting, no basis for bragging on ourselves. He wants this to be on our mind, the, price, uh, the, the purchase made. Well, if there's a purchase, then there has to be a price. What's the price of the purchase? He says in the end of verse 18, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ. So what was the price? What was the price for redeeming those who were slaves to the futile, empty way of life? Before you answer the question, here's something you have to know. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 49. Listen to this. You ready? Truly, this is Psalm 49, verse 7. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Why? For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Now, there are several things that you can learn there, but I just want to point out one. The ransom is actually paid to God. The ransom, the price is paid to God, not Satan. I'm sure that many of you have just assumed that there was a price paid and that it had to be paid for, to Satan. As if Satan is the one who is over us and then God said, okay, here, I'll purchase them from you. And Satan said, okay, I'll give them back to you. Kind of like a, a, a lion, the witch in the wardrobe kind of idea. But that's not what it is. That's not the case. The price is paid to God. We learn in Ezekiel chapter 18, he says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. And then he says this, the soul who sins shall die. Every soul is subject to death and judgment for it is appointed unto man once to die and then comes the judgment. We will be held guilty before God for our sin and there's no escape from that judgment. Why? For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So, do you know what the price of ransom, the ransom is? You know what the price of our redemption is? You know what it costs to purchase prisoners to sin? Well, he says here, it's not something that can be affected by earthly prices. You can't pay this ransom with silver or gold. I mean, the things that are most valuable still to us, the things that are most valuable to us temporally, the most precious metals we would call silver and gold. But listen, friends, and this is key for what we're going to learn out later. There is no earthly currency by which ransom can be paid. The currency of this ransom cannot be perishable. It cannot be temporal. So kids, let me ask you again. What is the price of this ransom? And I want you, particularly you young people, I want this to, to sit on your minds and in your heart. The cost of ransom 
to get you out of slavery to sin, to get you out of the prison to your sin that was passed on for your parents and great-grandparents and great-grandparents and on and on and on, is the blood of a perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice substituted in your place. We are born in our sin. It's inherited by our nature. That is a way of futile thinking, aimless wandering that will only ever yield the fruit of eternal condemnation. The ransom that is demanded by God to release us from the curse of sin is the blood of Christ. You see what he says there? The blood of Christ. In verse 19. Now, we look and see that word Christ, and we just think of a person. And, and we would do right to do that. We, we think of the Lord Jesus, the person of the Lord Jesus. However, when Peter says Christ, he's, he's using that word as a title. It's like the New Testament equivalent for the Old Testament word Messiah. It means the anointed one. The appointed one. Now listen, this is very important. The only possible release from the curse of sin is the blood of the Christ, the Messiah. It can't be any other. It can't be any other sacrifice. The one anointed the one appointed by God to defeat Satan and sin and death. That's why Peter says it's the precious blood. That word precious, precious means unique, honored. It's, it's, it's rare. Why? Because no one else could fulfill all of the credentials necessary to being called the Christ. Very specific. What is needed is the blood sacrifice, the substitutionary blood sacrifice of the Messiah, the Christ, the one appointed, anointed from before the foundation of the world. So we go now from the purchase made to the price paid. Now you have to see something about the person ordained. And that's exactly what he says. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. The person ordained. Do you see how Peter describes this, this one, this Christ, and his perfection? What does he say? He says, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What Peter does here is he reaches way back to the Old Testament and he recalls the necessity that the Passover lamb, you remember this, right, church? The Passover lamb must be without spot or blemish. That lamb, my friends, would have to be so unique, so unlike the other lambs, searched out, found to be the very one necessary, and then that lamb was brought home and kept in the home, nourished, played with by the children, always then to be carried to the priest and slaughtered in just the exact way at just the right time as God said. And that lamb had to be without spot 
or blemish. That lamb was precious because he was marked out for a purpose. The purpose was that the blood of that lamb would be presented as a sacrifice for the sin of the people. But Peter is not speaking about a Passover lamb, the lambs of the Old Testament. He's speaking of a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was the ransom, the price for our redemption from those futile ways of life. He is precious and his blood is precious. Why? Because he is because of his perfection. Perfect, spotless, blameless, sinless, the ultimate sacrifice, the one to which all the other sacrifices pointed. The one for which all the saints of all the ages waited and longed and needed. He is the perfect sacrificial lamb of God. The ransom for redemption was always only ever the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death for my life. His death for your life. He's talking about the person ordained and his perfection. But then he moves on to talk about his preordination or his predestination. That's a beautiful word here. Verse 20, he was foreknown. We not only talk about his perfection, but his preordination. His, he was foreordained. Listen, look with me at Acts chapter 2. I want to show you what I mean here. Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Look at verse 22, Acts 2, 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up, now look at this, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes David. And he says, this is the one spoken of by David. I think about Isaiah 42, is it 42.1? Behold my servant whom I have chosen This is talking about not just that God looked down the corridors of history and saw that there will be one called Jesus of Nazareth and then he made that part of his plan. In fact, listen to what Tom Schreiner said. He said, why did Peter state here that Christ was foreknown? How does it fit into the argument? The main theme of the paragraph is that believers should conduct their lives in fear. They should do so because they have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Now the readers are informed that this is no afterthought. God determined before history ever began that Christ would appear at a particular juncture in history as Redeemer. That's the point. The ransom that is demanded by God to release us from the curse of sin is the blood of Christ. And the only possible release from the curse of sin is the blood of Christ. The Messiah, the one appointed and anointed by God to defeat sin and death and Satan. Listen to me. There are hundreds of prophecies 
from the Old Testament that could only be fulfilled by one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, then on top of those prophecies, there are dozens and dozens of pictures or patterns or types that could only be fulfilled by one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And on top of those dozens of covenants, on, on top of those dozens of types, there are several covenants which demand only ever the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Him. No other one throughout all of created history matches up. Foreordained before the foundation of the world. Jesus is not a plan B. He was not just some Johnny-come-lately as a shot in the dark. No, this was all the perfect eternal plan of the perfect eternal God. The Father didn't learn about these things and then make it part of His plan. No, God foreordained Christ. He predestined Christ to be the sin-bearing sacrifice for those whom He foreknew. His very elect. Christ is the eternally chosen to purchase the eternally chosen. His perfection his preordination, and then his presentation. He says, but was made, this is in the middle of verse 20, but was made manifest in the last time. He was manifested. That means that he appeared on the scene. The perfect Passover lamb slain even in the eternal mind of God from before the foundation of the world. Do you know that's how the Bible speaks? The Bible speaks in language like that. That he was slain from before the foundation of the world. That is to say, listen, in the eternal counsel of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this was the plan all along. So sure, so certain that he could be called the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world. It was as if in the mind of God this had already happened. But, He then came. He appeared into human history. He was inserted, if you will, into human history, presented through the virgin conception and His his human birth. He appeared and He lived and demonstrated over and over again by His life and by those fulfilled prophecies that He was the very one. You can be sure. You can be absolutely certain. You can be assured that Jesus is the very one. You got it there in black and white. He was the very one who existed before Bethlehem as God the Son. And when was He presented? When was He manifested? He says in these last times. Now I don't want to get too far into this, but let me just say this. The last times in the Scripture is always a reference to the time that begins with the first coming of Christ and goes all the way up including the second coming of Christ. What I think Peter is doing here is he's giving us an indication of the plan of God. That everything is working according to his plan. You see, he's going to tell us this later when he gets to the second epistle. There's lots of people saying, where's the promise of his coming? They're the, they're the scorners. They're the scoffers, rather, right? Scoffing. Oh, the, it, everything has remained the same. He's not coming. And Peter says, just God is not slack, as some count slackness, but he is working out his plan just as he preordained from before the foundation of the world. When he says that he was manifested in the last times, it means that at just the right time, 
Jesus was presented. At just the right time, he was conceived in the Virgin Mary. At just the right time, he was born in Bethlehem. At just the right time, he was presented as the sin-bearing, wrath-bearing sacrifice on the cross. At just the right time, he was buried. At just the right time, he rose again. And brothers and sisters, this is a note to tell us. It's It's a reminder that at just the right time, he will come again. Amen. He will come again. He is the ordained person in His perfection, in His preordination, and in His presentation. And then that light leads us to what the, the last element that, that God wants to be on our minds this morning. He wants to be on our minds the purpose that He names here. Look what He says, verses 20 and 21. For the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What's the purpose? What's the purpose that He wants to have on the forefront of your minds this morning? The God-ordained purpose is that there was this purchase-made, price-paid, person-ordained, purpose-named my wife told me I could start rapping, and maybe I'll start, I'll bust a rhyme sometime. But uh, what was the purpose? So that you and I can have confidence before God. And that confidence is not in you. But God worked it out perfectly so that you, could, you would become a, a confident in God through Christ. That Christ was the measure the foundation of your confidence. The grounds, if you will, of your boasting. The foundation of your confident expectation. If you were to die tonight, and you were to stand before God in heaven, and He were to look you in the eyes and say, what reason do you have to let, for me to let you into my heaven? And as one man said, if you answer that in the first person, you are on perilous ground. If you say, well, I, danger, alert. My friend, the only reason for our confidence is not in the first person. It is in the third person. Him, He, Jesus. That's the purpose that He names out. So that you might have confidence in God. Your faith and hope, your confident expectation rests not in you, but in God alone. That's the purpose. That's why he ordained and and, and brought together this perfect gospel plan. That's why you needed to be ransomed with the blood of Christ, who is the perfect sacrificial lamb of God. The one that all the sacrifices prefigured so that you could have confidence before God that doesn't rest in you and it doesn't rest in me. Your hope rests in Him not only as your Creator but as your Redeemer. That's what He wants on your minds today. He wants this to be following you around on your mind everywhere you go. You're thinking about the purchase made, the price paid, the person ordained, and the, pers- the purpose named. Now, I want to close out with just a couple of points of application. 
First of all, let me say it this way. The life of reverential fear, which is in the context, that's what he's telling us about. The life of reverential fear is the life that is constantly lived under the shadow of the cross of Christ, which is illumined by the empty grave with an eye to the heavens waiting for the blessed hope of his soon appearing. You hear reverential awe or living in fear. And we immediately, intuitively think, "Uh, fear, uh," like that. I'm fearing. And that's not at all what he means. The life of reverential fear is a life that's lived in the shadow of the cross. You see, I've had people ask me, even recently, is it wrong to come to God out of fear? Of condemnation. People say, I, I, maybe I'm only coming to him because I fear being judged. And my answer to that is, no, it's not wrong. That's what he designed. You should be afraid of being condemned and eternally judged. You should be afraid. And in that fear, when you come in fear, here's what happens. You come in fear and you're like this and then you look up and you see Christ dying on the cross in your place you see a wrath-bearing sacrifice and that fear turns to what? Love. We love Him because He first loved us. And that reverential fear, that reverential awe is lived in the, the shadow of the cross which is illuminated in the empty grave of the Lord Jesus Christ with an eye to heaven that He's coming again and I can't wait to see Him even though I don't deserve a lick of it. In fact, I deserve to be condemned. You deserve to be condemned. But when He comes again, He's not coming with condemnation. He's coming with grace. And that's how you live a life of reverential awe, reverential fear, with just, man, Jesus died. He was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the Gospel, isn't it? This is the Gospel. Second, a robust theology of redemption is perhaps your greatest help for living out your Christian calling. A robust theology of redemption. Thinking long and hard on, meditating on exactly what God in the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished to bring you to Himself. If you are fighting temptation, maybe you're fighting lust right now. Some of you men are dealing with, you're, you, you've been giving in to the, to the sin of pornography. And you're, you're, man, it's just, it seems like it's got a hold on you. I want to tell you the greatest help for you to fight that sin is a robust theology of redemption. Jesus died for that sin. I don't want to entertain myself with anything that required nails being driven through His hand and feet. That required the Father turning His face away. And just that understanding of what He accomplished for you. That's a 
a robust, a developing, a strong, increasing understanding of the ransom price paid for your redemption that demanded the life, the blood of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the third point I want to make is this. And and I'll take just a bit of time on this. The gospel is the currency of redemption. The gospel is the currency of redemption. The only price that can be paid, the only cost that can be paid, it can't be anything earthly. It can't be anything perishable. It has to be something completely imperishable. The gospel is is the price, the currency of redemption. So right now, you're sitting here, I'm I'm imagining talking to somebody who's asking this question. How do I know Christ died for me? I believe Christ died. I believe that He was buried. I believe that He rose again. But how do I know that He died was crucified, buried, and rose again for me. You can know, you can know that Christ died for you if you are one who appropriates Christ's death. Your confidence, that's, that's what Peter, I think, is really pushing at here. Your confidence is not in the religious traditions that you've learned from your fathers. It's not found in your aimless wanderings to your next selfish pursuit. Those are empty. They promise lots and deliver only death. God has arranged it such that your only hope could be in Him. Not even in your present experience of a nice, neat, little life. Your only hope is Christ, Christ Christ, you, you want assurance? You want to know something that will convince you that you are accepted? The only thing that God gives you, the only thing that God gives you, the only thing that you can look at, to, you can claim, dear friend, is the all-sufficient, foreordained, ransom price paid in the blood of Christ verified in the resurrection from the dead and sealed forever at the right hand of the eternal throne of God. That's how He has arranged it. You can only look in faith and you can lay all your eggs in that basket. Trust Him and Him only. Every sin, every thought, every deed, every longing of your heart submitted to the Lordship of Christ. But how do I know, you say, how do I know, Pastor Joe, that I've been bought, that I've been ransomed? Question, Is your hope in God? Are you clinging moment by moment to Him? You say, but but I sin. I didn't ask you. I said, are you clinging to Christ? When you sin, do you find? Yeah. Listen, remember we talked a couple of weeks ago, your faith is not, it's not about the quantity of your faith, the quality of your faith. It's about the object. Christ. Are you setting your hope in the gospel message because that's the currency of redemption. 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ according to the Scripture. That's the, the gospel is the currency of grace. The gospel is the currency of redemption. It's how you reason with God. That's why He gave you this invitation. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. And then later he says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast and sure love for David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall, not, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. How is grace transacted? How is redemption applied? The currency of redemption is the gospel. It's not through merit. It's what Top Lady said when he wrote, Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. That's what he wants on your minds today. So many things that can be on your mind today. So many different things. And God is saying, no, get your mind on this, church. Get your mind on this. Walk out of here today thinking about the purchase that was made, the price paid, the person ordained, the purpose named. And if you've never come to trust Christ, if you've never transacted redemption, the, the, the price... For your redemption. It only comes through the gospel. If you will believe. Turn away from everything else. Every other hope. Every other help. And cling to Christ. Not a nice neat little happy life. But Christ. And him alone. That's what he wants on your mind today. Run. Run. To Christ. Let's pray together. So thank you Lord now. For the time that you've given us. Thank you for your word. And I pray that you'll press it on us. Oh Lord press it on us even more. That we may know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. For your glory. We pray this in Jesus name. And together all God's people said. Amen. Would you stand?